Welcome to the War and Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Rob Underwood, Chief Development Officer of Finos. Finos, short for the Fintech Open Source Foundation, is a global community creating open source solutions for financial services. As a community of people, companies, and events, Finos's purpose is to accelerate collaboration and innovation in financial services through the adoption of open source software, standards, and best practices. Their 30-member organizations include Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, GitHub, Citi, Symphony, and many more. They have over 300 contributors developing over 40 open source projects. In this episode, Rob covers the genesis of Finos and its purpose, how Finos measures success and monitors its projects, how these brutally competitive companies come together in Finos, some of the most exciting projects they're taking on, his love for the Grateful Dead and Fish, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Rob, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to Good have to you be as here. a guest. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, where are you located at the moment, and what have you been up to these last few months? Well, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, which is where I live with my family. I am surviving the pandemic as best uh, I think you know we all can. I uh, spent a few months back home in Maine, which is where I'm from originally. Otherwise, kind of getting through this, I've sort of been a little amazed at the degree to which New York seems to be kind of coming back. I think there's still a lot of folks and a lot of businesses here in New York City that are still struggling, and we really need to do everything we can to help them out. Um, But I'm also noticing that there's a lot of activity on the streets, and it seems like the city's starting to come back to life, which is exciting to see. Yeah, that's great to hear. Definitely seen a lot of videos the last few months of the debate over whether New York is dead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't think New York is a city that is going to. I was here for 9 11 and I was here for the power outage in 2005 and Hurricane Sandy. And New York is a survivor. And I think New Yorkers are survivors. So I'm excited to see what the city, what, how the city will come back. And I, I think it will. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right. So to begin, could you just talk us through your background and take us up to the founding of the FinTech Open Source Foundation? Sure. So, my personal background is I, I went to Colby College in Maine, and then I did a stint of teaching English in Japan, and then came back. And like a lot of people from my generation, Gen X, I uh, kind of got into the Web 1.0 thing in the late 90s. And that took me to probably my big break, if you will, was while I was working home in Maine, I got recruited to work for Pandesic, which was probably 10 or 15 years ahead of its time. It's basically with an e commerce cloud providers, what we call it now, but back at the time, it was uh, called an application service provider, which was a really a very well-funded startup from Intel and SAP. And like lots of startups, it, it ultimately failed, but I learned a lot. I had a great mentor there, a gentleman named Harold Hughes, who was the former CFO of Intel, then went on to do some work at Rambus afterwards. And he kind of took me under his wing a little bit, and I worked with him on building our business in Japan. And then from there, I did a 12-year stint in consulting from 2000 to January 2013, six years at KPMG in the process of becoming Bearing Point, and then six years in Deloitte consulting in the strategy practice. I left in in January 2013, went on to be the chief technology officer of a graduate school of education called Relay. I did that for two and a half years. 
then went and did some independent consulting, kind of startup consulting, primarily in ed tech, but starting to get my toes into the fintech world. And then I started doing some consulting for what was then Symphony Software Foundation and now has become Finos and then became the director of programs and now the chief development officer. So what exactly is Finos and what was the genesis of the idea? Yeah, so the, the genesis of the idea really goes back to some work that was happening, a couple of open source projects that grew out of some work in Goldman Sachs almost 10 years ago, really back in 2011, 2012, 2013, a couple projects that ultimately got contributed into, into our organization um, called Minuet and Live Current. But there was an interest in building some open source alternatives to some of the trading systems, trading platforms, messaging platforms that are popular within the industry, that those projects ended up seeding the start of a company called Symphony, which is a platinum member in Finos. And Symphony took the strategy of, of wanting to be, like a lot of software companies, especially in the enterprise sector, of wanting to be a platform. And part of being a platform was it wanted to encourage development and specifically open source development on its platform. And they incubated effectively within or started within Symphony, uh, an organization called the Symphony Software Foundation, which was created to do that, to promote open source development on the Symphony platform, started by our executive director, Gabriele Colombro. And that grew. And in about 2017, probably about six months before I started consulting, there was a bit of a realization that what, and I should probably also mention that lots of the organizations that were on the board of Symphony were also on the board of the Symphony Software Foundation. And those organizations are many of the bulge bracket investment banks that we can talk about in a second too, that there was an opportunity to not just drive open source development on the Symphony platform, but to drive open source development across all sorts of platforms to really diversify. And so that led to a project that resulted in Finos moving out of Symphony and being rechristened, if you will, the FinTech Open Source Foundation, or Finos. And I think our birthday, if I recall, is April 24th, 2018. And so we still have Symphony projects, but now, you know, in the, in the subsequent two years, we've accepted all sorts of other contributions and other projects. So that's, while it's still a part of the foundation, we have all sorts of other projects. I know we'll probably get into that within Finos. You know, our focus is really to drive open source contribution, collaboration, and consumption within financial services. And I probably should mention that we have a bit of a focus just given our history on capital markets, so on institutional banking. So kind of the heavy lifting, big plumbing that banks that, that like JP Morgan or Citi or Morgan Stanley have to concern themselves with, although we're starting to move more into other areas. And I point that out because I think the term fintech often, I think if you were to browse LinkedIn or Twitter, becomes somewhat synonymous with either retail banking and, and really specifically things like challenger banks in the UK, debundling, or blockchain, or both of those, right? So people hear fintech and they think those two. 
and we have a foot in those areas, our history is institutional banking and capital markets. So who exactly are its members and partners? And then I know you mentioned a platinum level. So what are the different levels and roles of each as well? Yeah, so we have 34 members today. And as you say, we have really four different levels. Now we have a platinum level, which is comes with a, a board seat. Um, we have a gold level, which is where representatives of the gold members are elected and similarly for silver. The platinum level is, uh, there are, like I said, a lot of Bulls Bracket are there. So our platinum members are Citi, Deutsche Bank, GitHub, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Nomura, RBC, Symphony, and UBS. Um, so much of the Bulls Bracket, as well as, again, Symphony, just with our legacy. And then probably no surprise that GitHub is a platinum member given you know, their sort of critical role within the infrastructure of open source just in generally. Um, I should also note that we have GitLab, which is a direct competitor to GitHub. They're also a member of Finos. And I think that's, you know, that's even just amongst those platinum members that I just discussed, Citi, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, et cetera, you know, no more UBS, RBC. In the marketplace, those organizations are fierce competitors or you know, in all sorts of different ways in capital markets, competing for the next hot IPO, et cetera. But much of the infrastructure in financial services is effectively a shared infrastructure. These organizations are all in a larger trading ecosystem, both with themselves as well as with buy-side organizations. And there's a lot of utility and value to building the commons. And I think you know, if you think of that idea of the commons of the really in that kind of traditional way of a public commons that, that a farmer would let her, his flock go and use. It's that same idea here that there's a commons in which these institutions operate and that there is uh, utility in everyone sort of pitching in to tend the commons, even though they might be competing with each other. And then, so how does an institution get involved? Is it a singular person, let's say a VP of technology at you know, city that wants to apply, or do they apply as a firm? A couple different ways. And let me sort of differentiate between membership, which is effectively sponsoring our mission to, you know, kind of put money into our budget to fund the operating expenses of the foundation. So, you know, obviously our salaries and the expenses put on events and and just the financial part of, of running a nonprofit. Um, so that's what that's kind of part of membership. Why I make that differentiation is one does not need to be a member in order to participate in our open source communities. And that's a really important kind of element of open source and a really important element to us from a philosophical standpoint that you don't have to pay to be part of these open source communities. So back to your question. Membership usually, though not always, is a function of somebody within one of these banks or technology companies or data providers hearing about Finos, getting involved with a project and saying, hey, you know, I'm getting value out of this, telling a colleague, telling another colleague, they're starting to be a critical mass, and then saying, hey, this is important, this is a value we think we should financially support this as an institution. So I, I think a good 
comparable model is public television here in the United States. So anyone can turn on uh, maybe nowadays with cable TV and <laughs> maybe I'm dating myself a little bit, but it used to be that when there was broadcast television, anyone could turn on public television and watch, you know, Sesame Street, at least before it went over to HBO, but you could watch Sesame Street or I'll date myself even further with the electric company. But you could choose to say, hey, I'm getting a lot of value. I think this is a great show. I really like this broadcast and I'm going to pay for it. So it's a bit of a, if I'm getting value, I will cable pound for my organization to become a member. That's not always the case. That's not the only path or journey in though. It's certainly the case that sometimes an executive, sometimes a very senior executive, maybe she's heard about Finos and just is like, you know, ready to ready to go and wants to get engaged and they'll become a member. And sometimes we'll have organizations that become members kind of first and then they start to get involved in our community. We also have people who get engaged as individual contributors who maybe, you know, maybe they're independent software developers. And, you know, or they're working on a contract basis and they don't have an employer per se in the traditional sense. Maybe they're, you know, talking about the gig economy. They work on a contract basis and they'll get involved in our community. And, and we love having those forms of contribution as well. So there are so many partners and members, you know, kind of with different involvement levels. Do you conduct any quality control of your events, projects and members, some sort of ongoing audit or monitoring at all? So there's a bunch of different things we do. So I think one of the, in terms of kind of quality control, and I think one of the things that is a point of differentiation for us and when people do choose to be members and when they're funding our work is, is that we provide, I'm going to get a little technical here, but we provide through our open developer platform, a suite of tools for developers first and foremost, but also really for the legal and compliance function within a bank or, or any employer that allows us to review code that's contributed for security vulnerabilities, but also for license compliance. And without getting into a long discussion and I'm not a lawyer, so I wouldn't necessarily even want to go in there. But without getting into a long discussion, one of the things in open source is there's different forms of licenses. We use the Apache 2.0 license, for example, largely speaking. But there are other licenses. You may have heard of the MIT license. There's a license called GPL. There's all these different forms of licenses. And when you are working with an open source project, you nearly always are pulling in other open source projects or open source libraries. And there's this concept of license compatibility. And sometimes the legal, this is a legal compatibility consideration, the legal compatibility or, or lack of compatibility is a consideration. So we provide tooling to check both when a project is originally contributed into the foundation or, for example, so Morgan Stanley just recently contributed a project called Morpher. And we did a license check to check that the other libraries and modules that it used were consistent from a legal license compliance perspective. So that's one thing that we do. And then the vulnerability point as well. The other thing that we do is, you may know, most employers in the United States, at least, and it's a little bit different in Europe, but in the United States, casts a very wide net in terms of 
IP ownership for an employee. So effectively, and I, you know, I don't want to, again, I'm not a lawyer, definitely not an employment lawyer, but by and large, when you work for a bank or when I worked at Deloitte, I was actually looking at my employment contract the other day to kind of look at what this is. Pretty much anything that I was doing at Deloitte that was sort of connected with my role, whether I was doing it, quote unquote, on my free time or on my own computer, if they could sort of draw a connection to my job description, they reserve the right to make an intellectual property claim against that invention, right? And so one of the things that we do is we have contributor license agreements and corporate contributor license agreements in particular, which allow a bank, so let's say just before I got on this, I was doing some work with Goldman on this, it allows Goldman to list out the developers that have been gone through their own internal training process and have been approved to contribute to make intellectual property contributions on Goldman Sachs' behalf. So we provide the tooling and the checks to ensure that if somebody makes a contribution of a couple lines of code on Goldman Sachs' behalf, they actually have been authorized by Goldman to do that on their behalf. And that isn't to get people in trouble or to try to make things harder. It's simply just to provide a recognizing that we that capital markets is a highly regulated industry and these are banks with all sorts of security and licensing and different intellectual property concerns that we're providing them some degree of of safety and to, to your question about you know auditability auditability of contributions and and other pieces and then shifting gears a little bit how does finos define success do you have any you know kind of kpis that you track toward or kind of yearly goals Ultimately, another way to think about Finos and, in fact, the, the legal structure in which we operated, and I, well, I think we'll probably talk about how we're now part of the Linux Foundation, but until we became part of the Linux Foundation, we were a 501c6, and the Linux Foundation is a similar structure, is to think of us as a chamber of commerce, right? So ultimately, our OKR is, are we creating value for our members? Are we creating value for our industry? And are we creating value for the community? So we do use OKRs, and I assume most of the listeners are probably familiar with the OKR framework. So we do use OKRs, but really at the end of the day, it's, you know, the, <laughs> the ultimate metric is really renewals in a sense, right? Are our members seeing enough sufficient value in the projects that are that exist within the foundation, the new projects that are coming on board, and are they seeing you know that value sufficient that they're wanting to renew in our new members coming on board? And so far, so good. Right? We have a growing roster of members, and I think we have a healthy renewal pipeline. But ultimately, that's you know it's do people want to stay in the chamber of commerce, right? That's really our ultimate metric. I think another consideration is we work in an industry that's driven by data and we work in an industry that's driven by financial monetary considerations. So while I think it's somewhat difficult to tie trader interoperability to an improvement in your discounted cash flows, you certainly want to be able to tell some sort of notional story for how 
using an open source standard for trader interoperability is going to take some cost takeout into your IT stack that then somewhere can be reflected in your books, right? And so that's also kind of the other you know, way in which we think about it. So yeah, you mentioned the, the Linux Foundation. So yeah, yep. Finos is a Linux Foundation-directed fund. Could you just talk you know, briefly about what that means for our listeners? Sure. So when you start up, it's, it's interesting because we sort of did it in reverse, but when you, although given our background in Symphony, maybe not, but when you start up a nonprofit, just like you start up a profit, a for-profit company, there's, there's all sorts of things you have to do that are costly, right? So you have to have a finance function, an HR function, an IT function, all sorts of these different functions that are costly. And when a nonprofit, 501c6 or 501c3 for that matter, is evaluated, oftentimes a key metric is, is what's the ratio of, of operating funds that are used for mission delivery is often the, the phrase you'll hear versus just kind of that core operating cost. And, and the, the idea being that you want to see as much of the money being used for mission delivery. You want to see sort of, you know, good controls over the amount of money that's being spent on sort of the necessary operating expenses. So many nonprofits, as a result, will choose to use what's known as a fiscal sponsor. And effectively, the Linux Foundation for us is a fiscal sponsor plus, right? So Previously, in sort of the two years from April 2018 to when we became part of the Linux Foundation, we were sort of on our own, right? So we did use some shared services. For example, we had Trinet for our CEO. But largely speaking, those sort of costs of operating were things that we had to sort of take out of our budget. And it wasn't a huge amount, but still it was something. What's really great about the Linux Foundation is they effectively are a foundation of foundation or foundation of foundations in the sense of like a foundation of open source foundation. So there are other large open source foundations like CNCF is a good example that also exists on this shared infrastructure. So we're able to mutualize lots of the costs of operating a open source foundation and get the additional benefit that there's lots of stuff that we sort of do that's similar, for example, whether it's a contributor license agreement or another variation called the DCO, we all have to think about things like contributor license agreements so we can sort of share knowledge, share processes. There's lots of stuff we can share. So to your question, think of it as being a directed fund means effectively we're able to take advantage of this shared infrastructure that the Linux Foundation provides. And the directed simply comes from the phrase that when somebody writes their membership check, they're directing that money to be used for the Finos membership. That was actually very helpful. So then could you walk us through a few projects on Finos or maybe one or two that you've worked on or found most impactful over the last few years? Yeah, no problem. So just as a little bit of context, we have approximately 41, 42 projects that are either in what we call an active state, which means they've reached a level of kind of back to your quality control point, they've reached a a level of maturity and we have some formal designations and criteria for that, where effectively the the code is viewed as being sort of production ready. Um, We have about 20 projects that are inactive and then we have about 20 projects that are incubating, which means they're getting to that point. We generally like to see projects be incubating for about six to 12 months. And so 
across those projects, I think a few of our, I'll say our greatest hits, although you know we love them all, like your children, you can't pick a favorite, but I think some of the ones that we're probably better known for include FDC3. So FDC3 is, I mentioned, trader interoperability. So if you think about the way that you experience your iPhone or your Android device, you can be in one application and then click something and it'll open up something else in another application, right? So I think we've all had the experience of, you know, your Google Maps and then you open up a restaurant and it'll click some other application that has maybe more detail about a restaurant. And that's a pretty slick feature. And that's one of the things that makes our devices in our pockets so compelling is the ability for these applications to sort of have some awareness about uh, each other. It is not the case, and you could very quickly do a factorial of how many applications there are in the world. It is, it is simply not the case. It's not, it's not practical that all of those applications be developed, all work with each other, right, point to point. So they adhere to a set of standards around interoperability so that even if two applications never knew about each other before, they can call up services within each other. So FTC3 brings that same sort of innovation to a trader desktop. So for folks listening who have been on a trading floor, if you can imagine a trader workstation, there'll be many screens and there'll be all sorts of different uses of the different screens. Um, And a trader may be dragging different pieces of information from different applications. Well, what FTC3 does is it allows applications to be able to share data with each other and different applications, you know, maybe an application for booking an order versus pricing or getting a quote, doing RFQ, et cetera. So those can be used together and the data can be shared pretty seamlessly, even if the applications were never intended to be used or designed to be used together. That was originally developed by one of our members named OpenFin a fintech startup based here in New York. And what's interesting there is now we get contributions from not only OpenFin, but also OpenFin's two, you know, probably two largest competitors, an organization called Glue 42 and another one named Kosaic, which used to be uh, ChartIQ. And so this is another example of, you know, one organization, OpenFin, saying, hey, we think we've got something good. We think it's in the interest of the industry to open source it. We're going to open source it. Their two competitors getting involved. Other organizations like JP Morgan or FactSet, Citadel getting involved, making it even better. And everyone's sort of saying, hey, it's in all of our interests to have trader interoperability. So even though we may be competing in the marketplace, um, it's good for everyone for this to work together. So I, I think it's probably one of our better known and bigger success stories. Another project that I think is really interesting is the Perspective Project, which was originally contributed by JP Morgan. That's a data visualization library. It uses a really interesting technology called WebAssembly, which effectively allows high-performance code developed in languages like C++ to be able to effectively run within the browser. And I should also mention that these projects that I mentioned, FTC3 is ftc3.finos.org. Perspective is perspective.finos.org. We have a catalog of these at landscape.finos.org if you want to check these out. But Perspective is another one that I think is really interesting. We have a couple synthetic data projects that have been recently contributed 
We have Data Hub, which was recently contributed by City, and Data Helix, which was contributed by Logic, both members. So another, especially in this world of AI and ML, having data that is close, but not in fact real production data that you can use on scale is another kind of really important thing for developers, especially. So that allows that to happen. Morpher just got contributed. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about Morpher. That allows effectively the ability for functions and algorithms to be stored in a consistent language agnostic way so they can be used in different applications. And then right now, we're gearing up for the open sourcing of a project called Alloy from Goldman Sachs, which has been something I've been focused on a lot for the last, really going back to last fall, almost a year now, which is a logical modeling language used almost ubiquitously within Goldman Sachs for the developer pricing models and risk models and human resource modeling and all sorts of different ways within the bank. And the way that that way to sort of conceptualize that is if you think about a complex financial instrument, let's take a an FX, a foreign currency option, for example, the way that pieces of that FX option will be represented in you know, any bank, maybe in dozens, perhaps hundreds of different systems pieces of that FX option will be represented and keeping the shape of the data consistent in all of those different systems is really important. And what can drive up integration costs within any organization, but certainly a bank, is when those shapes of data are inconsistent and you have to write integrations to reflect the fact that those shapes need to be you know, changed. And so what Alloy does is it allows the shape of data to be defined. In this case, it's let's say it's an FX option. And then it can generate code in a number of different languages that then can be used to update the underlying physical databases where the actual transactions are happening or the reporting is happening to make sure that they are consistent. So those are a few of the projects that I think you know you might be interested in, or you know, your listeners might be interested in. But I Again, I feel a little bit bad. Like I say, it's you know I have three kids and I could never choose a favorite. I feel like I'm probably, <laughs> I feel bad about trying to choose a favorite because they're all really great. No, those are great. And the Alloy one sounds very interesting. One quick follow-up on that. So Goldman develops that w- with Finos. So then let's say JP Morgan, are they able to kind of take the insights from the site, this Alloy's capabilities and use it in their own systems? They will be. So the Alloy project is interesting in that With Alloy, we introduced a new concept called a formation stage for our projects, whereby a project is sort of pre-open sourcing, but basically where we do a pilot of the software and allow and invite organizations that would like to take a look to participate in a pilot to see how using that software would work in a shared capacity to kind of get a taste of it. And then to provide that feedback to the potential contributor, in this case, Goldman Sachs, and then for that feedback to be reflected in the ultimate open source code. So the code has not been open source yet. So we did invite organizations to participate in the pilot, which was to actually try and use Alloy to do this logical modeling. And we had about a half dozen organizations, primarily Finos members, but a few other organizations that are not Finos members that raised their hand and said they wanted to check it out. Um, But then yes, once the code is open source, you know, probably if not by the time this podcast is broadcast and probably shortly after, 
then absolutely JP Morgan or Deutsche Bank or Barclays or any organization can take the code and launch it and run their own of Alloy. We sort of expect that probably shortly after, we'll probably see a couple of the cloud service providers will launch some sort of capacity to do like a one-click. If you think of um, those AWS or Azure or GCP or any of them, you, you can go to the dashboard and launch a kind of a ready-made instance of an application that you may want to launch in the cloud. I expect that as there's further adoption of Alloy, we'll see that. But I also expect that some of the banks will probably just take it, the code and run it in their own IT stack or on-premises somewhere. But yeah, absolutely, that's the idea. And then the idea is, is that, let's say it's Deutsche Bank is playing with Alloy and working with it and starting to develop perhaps its own models with it. They may say, hey, you know, we've developed a new feature. We think it's pretty cool. We want to contribute it back. And then everyone can take advantage of that new feature. Similarly, they may also develop some models and say, hey, we want to contribute those models. So with Alloy, it'll be possible. It already is possible to collaborate on the models. And now you'll be able to contribute both extensions to models and contribute extensions to the underlying modeling software itself. So we're pretty excited by that. And it's been, I mean, again, it's been just a tremendous collaboration of a bunch of different banks that, again, compete fiercely in the marketplace, but have been collaborating, evaluating this modeling software. And then kind of shifting to the more personal side. So the fintech landscape is so dynamic. How do you stay informed on such a complex, massive industry? Oh, I listen to your podcast, of course. <laughs> that was the right answer. <laughs> Good. Uh, lots of podcasts, lots of curated searches on LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, there were a lot of, I, I almost would say it was the market was saturated, but there were a lot of fantastic events, especially in New York. Uh, it, it felt like there was a different fintech event every week or every day in New York. So judiciously attending lots of different events that are out in the marketplace. We have our own open source and fintech meetup that we do. We did it previously in person. Now we do it online, virtually. So attending that, reading a lot. I mean, like you say, it's keeping up on everything is hard. I For retail stuff, I think I you know, generally will check out the 11FS podcast from time to time on the retail side more. Um, there's all sorts of podcasts I like, but yeah, lots of podcasts. So kind of last question. So to close the interview, we usually like to ask, you know, about some hobbies to showcase a personal side. Have you picked up any new quarantine hobbies? I saw on your Twitter, you cooked up a few seafood feasts, listened to a few old dead shows. I'm a huge fan of you all. Yeah. Well, so a couple of friends of mine, friend Joanne, Joanne in particular is often posting meals that she and her family and her kids are cooking up. And I, I was sort of following some of her posts and I, and this was when I was heading up to May, I was like, you know, I, I got to kind of get out of the rut of just like whatever's available. And I was like, I'm going to sort of up my game. And so being in Maine, again, which is where I'm from, I grew up in Kennebunkport, Maine. Uh, my family owned a an inn called the Breakwater. It's still there. We sold it about 20 years ago. It was a seafood restaurant. My dad was a pretty accomplished chef, my uncle as well. And so I, I sort of grew up in sort of a seafood restaurant setting washing dishes and then doing salads and waiting tables. So I decided, you know, it's time to kind of get back into it and started to cook again and do some seafood. And yeah, so that's certainly just sort of, I don't know if taking advantage is the right phrase, but certainly using the pandemic as an opportunity to maybe uh, slow down a little bit and, and focus on having a proper dinner with your family and making opportunity for conversation and having good nourishing food. So yeah, definitely. I do like 
the dead. I uh, And speaking of fish, I do like fish, pH, ISH as well. And uh, when I was in college, I was in Colby Jazz Ensemble, but I also was in a, a Grateful Dead cover band. And so I've been picking up my bass again. I used to play you know, kind of the Phil Lesh lines, certainly not as well as Phil Lesh did, but that was my my role in the band. And so uh, I've been picking up my bass. I have a guitar as well. So I've been trying to play some music, listening to some shows for sure. It is interesting. It seems like people are really kind of getting back into different hobbies. And for me, it's definitely been getting back into music. I love going to the gym. I love running. And it's been, we have a wonderful, and I feel like I'm hitting a stereotype of mentioning CrossFit, but I do do CrossFit. And we have this incredible CrossFit community in Brooklyn CrossFit South Brooklyn. I mean, just the most diverse, wonderful, welcoming set of people and just from all sorts of super, just just a really great community. I really, really miss that community and being there. So I'm looking forward to getting back into that just as soon as I can. Um, They just opened last week and then I do like to run and do that stuff. So I've been running around Prospect Park and um, yeah. It's quite, a, quite an active quarantine. There's a lot going on there, Rob. Well, I'm, I, 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 I was not exercising for most of the quarantine. The, the, the running thing, I just was doing push-ups and sit-ups in my right. in, our, in our little apartment. You know, when I went up to Maine, I was doing some hiking and stuff. But yeah, I'm trying to, trying to stay active. I've got my bass and the guitar right by my bed, so I can just pick them up. And, and uh, I've been trying this past week to learn the bass line from Paul McCartney's Silly Love Song, which whether you think it's a cheesy song or not, it's tremendously interesting baseline. Um, so I've been trying to pick that baseline up. So. I'll have to check that out. I have my guitar and bass uh, behind me as yeah. well. I'll cool. have to check it out. Um, well, great, Rob. We can, we can wrap it up there. So thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. This was a great episode and excited to get that to the listeners. Great. I hope everyone checks out finos.org on Twitter. We're Finos Foundation. My handle's Brooklyn Rob, but definitely check out Finos Foundation on Twitter, uh, Linux Foundation on Twitter. And, you know, I hope that folks will check us out and get involved, whether you're a developer or product manager or somebody who works in works in the industry. Um, I think open source, this is our time. I think there's a lot of value to it, to the regulatory frameworks we work into. So definitely get involved. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zhao.